0: Investment Management Operations is brought to you by Inteligo. Inteligo is the premier due diligence platform delivering innovative pre-investment background checks and continuous subject monitoring for some of the most sophisticated asset allocators. Their individual and company background check reports blend the critical discernment of human experts with cutting-edge AI, ensuring you receive the most thorough and rapid insights. Groups like Common Fund, Adam Street Partners, Felicitous Global Partners, and past Capital Allocators guests Hamilton Lane, AIM-13, and NEPC leverage Intelligo to mitigate risk and enhance their operational due diligence process. Visit intelligo.ai to learn more. Hello. I'm Ted Sides, and this is Investment Management Operations. This show explores the inner workings of the most sophisticated institutions in the industry. Through conversations with executives across operations, compliance, legal, and finance, you'll hear how key operating partners run their businesses in an ever-changing and complex investment landscape. You can join our mailing list and access Capital Allocators content at CapitalAllocators.com.
1: I'm Scott McDonald, and I'm your host. My guest on today's show is Scott Pomfret. Scott Pomfret has seen every angle of the investment fund regulatory landscape. Scott spent eight years as a branch chief for the SEC's Division of Enforcement, leading teams investigating traditional and alternative asset managers. After a brief stint at PwC, Scott was the Chief Compliance Officer and Regulatory Counsel at Highfields Capital Management, a $12 billion value-oriented investment manager. Today, Scott advises private funds and vendors on regulatory, legal, and business issues. Our conversation covers Scott's tenure at the SEC, his transition to the private sector, and best practices for CCOs and their firms. He discusses the relationship between compliance and investment staff, building teams, and scaling operations. We close with Scott's work on various boards and what might be the coolest piece of memorabilia in fund compliance circles. Please enjoy my conversation with Scott Pomfret. Scott, it's great to see you. Great to see you. So tell us about a background and your history and how you got into your current role. I wanted to be a high school football coach.
2: I graduated
1: from college
2: and went back to my hometown and jumped on the staff of the football team there. And I actually coached for five years before I realized that I, while I wanted to be a high school football coach, I did not want to be a high school teacher and started casting about for a different future. And I made a brief stab at getting a PhD in what was called a program in the human sciences, which is a smash up of English, anthropology, sociology, you name it. And all that time, my older brother, who is a partner at a major international law firm, was whispering in my ear, you're going to love law
1: school. And what were you teaching in high school?
2: I was just coaching. And I was working during the daytime in a variety of roles, some assisting at the school, some running my own business, painting houses. But the part at the school convinced me even more so. You think about what teachers go through now and went through with COVID. That was a tough, tough, tough career I'd rather have something easy like law.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. So you went from law school directly to private practice? I clerked for a year with an absolutely wonderful
2: circuit court judge who was then in New Hampshire, subsequently in Boston. And then I went to Ropes and Gray, where I spent five years in the litigation department.
1: What was a typical case that you would deal with?
2: I started doing what I can only describe as catastrophically boring commercial litigation involving insurers such as Lloyds of London, defending themselves against things like repetitive hand strain injuries and claims for that. I quickly realized that was not something I wanted to do with the rest of my life and pivoted to doing government investigations, which was way, way more fun, a lot more fact development, interviews, et cetera, as opposed to writing legal briefs. So I did that for probably the last three years, almost exclusively, some with the SEC, some involving healthcare fraud and similar claims.
1: What made you decide to go from a premier organization like Ropes to working for the government?
2: That's easy. It's basically because the SEC staff on the other side of my matters were frankly no good. And we were handing them a case on a platter in this particular investigation. And they were asking all the wrong questions, chasing all the wrong leads. And a bunch of us at Ropes, as well as at then Deloitte, who was our forensic accountants involved at the time, were like, we can do this better. And we went over en masse. Basically, all of us arrived within three months. And there were two other lawyers and a forensic accountant. And eventually, another forensic accountant came over later. What a different atmosphere at the SEC versus Ropes & Gray. Obviously, pretty hierarchical at the law firm. The SEC, you walked in the door, they handed you a load of cases, and you got to work. And you did whatever you thought was appropriate in a particular matter going forward. What's a typical
1: enforcement case look like?
2: They come in through a variety of different leads. Whistleblower leads, tips are huge. The SEC gets thousands of those every year. They come through less so when I was there, but much more so now through various analysis that the SEC does of trading patterns, of activity in the market. They come from exam referrals, and they come from the newspaper. So it's not atypical for something big to happen. Silicon Valley Bank, for example. The first case I had, though, was really none of those. It was an FBI referral where the FBI had discovered a Ponzi scheme. It was down in Connecticut, the principal of the Ponzi scheme. He was raising money. It was not huge, huge dollars, maybe a million overall. And all of the people participating were people of very, very modest means. And within a week, we had an injunction against the gentleman, and we showed up in court down in Hartford, and there were probably 500 people lining the steps to the courthouse. All the participants in the Ponzi scheme, not mad at him, mad at us, because we had stopped them from getting what they regarded as their just rewards <laughs> from the scheme. Mild heckling was the least of it. It was quite
1: an intimidating scene. How long were you doing that enforcement?
2: I did that for two years and then became what's called a branch chief, which means that I had folks underneath me who were doing most of the investigating and I was doing the supervising and second chairing. And I had intended to leave the SEC after about five years, but I ended up getting an absolutely phenomenal case involving a big hedge fund that blew up in Connecticut in about 2007 and ended up sticking around for three years because I was driving this case, which we were coordinating with the CFTC, the Department of Justice, the FBI, the state securities regulators, a really exciting case, but not one you will have heard of because we ultimately did not recommend charges against the hedge fund manager. They were trading in huge positions in natural gas futures and managed to get sideways in the market. And I think they went from 12 billion to 3 billion in about maybe a week's time, needed to sell their book immediately to get out of the positions. And the question was, had they represented the risk and the size of this book to investors as they went along? And we ultimately concluded that they had. What was embarrassing and really striking was what a terrible job the investment consultants did for their clients because you looked at the due diligence that was done and to say it was thin is to do it a favor. It was terrible.
1: How did you hear about that case? That was one of these newspaper
2: cases where they blew up in spectacular order You know, on the front page of the journal. I literally hopped in my car and was in their office within 24 hours.
1: So let's say I'm in that seat and you decide to hop in your car and come visit me. What's the best way to manage that, if I'm the manager?
2: Yeah. The lawyers for the manager did an admirable job managing me, which is to say, they put me in a corner in a conference room and slowly, very, very, very slowly fed us core documents, the fund documents, the things that were easy to produce. And eventually, it became clear that, rightly so, that they should be given an opportunity to actually review the documents before handing them over to me and that it wasn't going to be helpful for us to be on site. It was more distraction to the firm trying to wrap up its affairs
1: and at least return some money to their investors. Is it often the case where it will prompt a routine examination or maybe for cause that you never know and then eventually go to enforcement? Where's that tipping point?
2: So in this case, I think the front page nature of this made us want to put enforcement people on the ground right away because we just didn't know why it had blown up rather than do what you just described, which is the typical road, which exam shows up, takes a look around, kicks the tires, nothing out of the ordinary. And it might be that an enforcement person is sent alongside, but that typically results in the registrant suddenly not wanting to talk anymore. We try not to bring that heavy hammer down
1: on the registrants if we don't have to. From there, you left the SEC. And where'd you go after that?
2: It was Dodd-Frank time and every private fund manager and their sister were needing to get registered. It was a time that was ripe for somebody with an SEC background to walk them through their paces and get them ready for the registration process. So I went to PWC. I helped managers in Europe. I helped managers in Boston. I helped managers in New York, on the West Coast, all trying to do the same thing, which is meet the deadline for Dodd-Frank registration for investment advisors.
1: If you're a manager that's based in Europe, but you have a lot of US investors, you're then required to register. What's the big challenge for organizations like that? They're under a totally different regime and all of a sudden they have to then start to march through the requirements of the SEC.
2: One of the things that is huge is the privacy piece, which is the SEC obviously expects to have emails, for example, and other electronic communications, not only archived, but reviewed regularly. This to the Europeans is a gross invasion of privacy by the employer. So that's one huge cultural issue that they have trouble getting over. The regimes are not so different that, generally speaking, it was easy to adapt what they were already doing and tweak it to fit the SEC model. And I think that remains true today. How long were you at PwC for? I was only at PwC for about 15 months because my very first client was Highfields Capital. And Highfields Capital was looking for a chief compliance officer and counsel. And lo and behold, after working together for that 15 months, they were ready to make me an offer. And I jumped ship. It was a firm that also had started the registration process. The first time the SEC attempted to require a registration of private fund advisors in 2005, so they actually had the bare bones of a
1: program in place, which gave us a head start. It like you already had a good look at what that organization culturally was like, so you knew a little bit about the tip of the iceberg.
2: We were sitting on site for week-long periods over the course of the 15 months. I met all the operations people, all the accounting people, obviously all the legal and compliance folks, the head of the firm, managing partners. So it was an opportunity that I think most people don't get going into a manager, particularly in that seat, which if you're in line with management on the importance of compliance, it's a great job. If you're not in line, it can be a hellish job. I had it easy. I think there are ways, though, that people can kick the tires and understand what it is they're getting themselves into before they actually say yes.
1: Are there any smoke signals that you can figure out?
2: I will tell you that watching how a firm (laughs) treats people, its own people, as well as visitors, I think is super instructive. So there was a time when I was considering applying to another job at a different private fund manager, much bigger. And went in. And the casual disregard for my time and dismissiveness, I'd probably sat around at least half the time, if not more, gave me the idea that maybe this is not a place that actually values either this job or its people, generally speaking. And ultimately, that firm was sued by the SEC for totally unrelated things, but it's indicative.
1: What's your experience like being a consultant and people seeking advice, And you're providing that information, how does that differ versus actually flipping the script and then being in house and trying to apply that same advice?
2: One of the things about coming from the SEC is you have zero idea about how to operationalize any of the rules that you're inflicting on registrants. At PwC, I had the advantage of really starting to understand that operational piece of things. But until you're actually in the registrant and understand how it works at your particular firm, it doesn't hit home until that point. I think now that I work with a number of fund managers, many of whom are spin-outs from high fields, two things, number one, I get how hard the operationalization piece is, even if you know what the rules are and have the right policies in place. And number two, just having lived through it to be a little more creative on getting to the end goal. There's some nice things about not being ultimately responsible if something goes wrong. But I also do miss sitting in the seat and making the final call. What's your definition of an effective chief compliance officer? I think the most important thing that a chief compliance officer can bring is make sure you're appealing less to statutes and laws and rules and focusing a lot more on the values that are driving the reasons you have policies. And hitting home with that, we always started all our trainings with look, here's the basic rule. We act ethically, fairly with our business partners, with our counterparties, with our investors, whomever. I think that having great training is important. If I mentioned a particular rule during a training, I failed. What I should be doing is telling stories and I should be helping people figure out from the stories what exactly it is they ought to do and be able to apply in a particular situation. After giving the same presentation two years in a row, we got to mix this up. We started using cartoons. We started making fun of ourselves. I just read about somebody who would define the word good afternoon, very legalistic fashion, just to make fun of themselves going through it. We just started to mix up how we delivered the message and frankly, who delivered the message. So it wasn't me constantly babbling on, but members of my staff
1: jumping in. What is that distinction between the annual requirement and then somebody who just joined? So wanted to convey to the new joiner, how important
2: compliance was at our firm. I was the second person after HR who greeted them in the morning. And we sat down for an entire 90 minutes and went through the rules of the game and went through some of the stories. And ultimately our answer was the number one rule of compliance is come talk to compliance. And this is our first conversation and it's definitely not gonna be the last.
1: So let's say I'm new to industry. What's the key takeaway for people coming into the seat, not knowing anything about all this. For everybody who comes into a new firm,
2: listen, 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 far more than you speak for the first three to six months, rather than trying to demonstrate your value right from the get-go. Really try to understand how the firm operates, who are the important people in your particular role. I can't emphasize enough finding peers, preferably outside your firm, you can share stories
1: with on a confidential basis and who ultimately will be your network over the course of your career. One of the topics we hear a lot is about, it's not the black and the white that's hard to manage. It's really the gray. What's your viewpoint on that area and trying to end up on the right side of that when most of that stuff is really unclear? Whenever
2: you are dealing with the gray areas, which as you pointed out, is really where you're adding value. You're not really adding value where it's black or where it's white is A, to prepare as best you can. Understand that while it's not your job to necessarily make a decision, you need to come with a point of view and be ready to make a recommendation. And your recommendation is typically going to be, you can do this or you can do that. Here's the risks attendant with the former. Here are the risks attendant with the latter. Here's my view of the likelihood of those risks manifesting. And ultimately that decision gets made by the head of the firm if it's a matter of importance or you may be making it if it's something that's appropriate for the CCO to handle so well.
1: Another thing was just the pure surface area that a CCO has to cover. You have to know the rules, and then there's things like technology, cybersecurity. Any thoughts on how one might get up to speed? How do you manage that? In some ways,
2: getting up to speed is having great peers. I had a phenomenal chief technology officer, for example, at my firm. And compliance and tech are constantly working hand in hand to make things happen, to operationalize some of these things that we spoke about before. But some of them are opaque. Some of them are difficult. They're trading instruments that I have to have the ops or the investment person speak to me very, very slowly and repeat it four times before I understand what it is they're Mm -hmm. saying. You need to have humility around that. You can't be all those things. You have to work your way through and get help from others in the firm. And again, from your peers as well, who can direct you to resources that are external
1: to the firm. Any advice on how do you create an effective working relationship with an investment staff? Because you're ultimately trying to modify people's behavior, but you're not in control of their compensation at a fundamental level.
2: I think the most important thing is investment professionals are people too. And you need to actually know their kids' names, know what kind of dog they have, meet their spouses at whatever opportunity, have that beer, because I think constant interaction with them was my biggest friend. They were familiar having me around lurking, they might say. And I think building an actual relationship with them is important. Second, I would find ways to demonstrate value on the margin, for example, finding them resources or data sets that may actually help the investment process propose, bring your knowledge to the fore. So in my case, knowing about litigation, SEC investigations, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, I was able to give them advice on targets that were going through those issues. We were looking at a publicly traded operator of amusement parks, and there was some suspicion that this particular firm was being affected by negative publicity, but couldn't see in the now whether or not that was true. And we came up with a plan to submit Freedom of Information Act requests because they had to report to the state the revenues that they had so they could pay taxes on it. And so we were able to grab that information and detect a decline in attendance using the proxy of what people were spending at the park. Random things that the investment team just might not think of, but that's in the wheelhouse of a lawyer familiar with FOIA or or state public records
1: act. There's that fine line between just managing the issue and putting it to bed. And then, should I elevate this to the CIO, the top of the house? What's your viewpoint on that? The fewer things you can bring
2: to the top of the house, the better off you are for a couple of reasons. One, you actually will appear competent. But two, when you do bring something, alarm bells will go off and you'll get the focus of the guy or gal at the top who might, if you bring them 10 things, are going to just stop listening. I believe that one of the reasons I got hired was to manage conflicts and crises so that the investment professionals could focus on investing. Again, I'm not doing it on my own. I'm doing it with CFO, and I'm doing it with the COO, and I'm doing it with the tech guys. But ultimately, the investment team does not want to hear about much of this stuff. That's why they're paying you.
1: When you take a step back, you're supposed to somehow identify the soft underbelly of your own organization. Is that pretty obvious for people? Or do you actually have to dig really hard to figure that out? I think it can
2: sometimes be hard for some of the other departments to recognize things that you might look at as a compliance risk. That's your job. i talked about telling stories, telling stories that will make them light up. Oh, that's this situation that I'm facing right here, which I never would have thought of bringing to you, except you told me that story that's somewhat analogous it is almost always some relationship, some college buddy, some odd source of information, something that gets public. Inevitably, that's the hard part, is when you're trying to do an assessment of the conflicts of the firm or an assessment of the risks to the firm, you're a little bit dependent on the folks you work with to help you scope those out, because again, you can't be everywhere at all times.
1: So once a year, you then have to write up this report on how things go, And the guidance just seems to me, it's very vague. Any suggestions about how you might tackle that? I've heard sometimes less is more, but you don't want to provide a roadmap, but you need to highlight really, I did my job and here's where we looked and here's what we found.
2: It's a delicate balance because you don't want it so thin that they're just, why do we pay you so much? But I think that my number one advice to the CCOs that I work with is... This isn't, in fact, a a once-a-year thing. It should be assembled at one point in the year, but ultimately you should be doing pieces of it as you go along throughout. And I think you will find yourself with a focus on different areas at different times of year. I obviously kept my own notes, but that is not what we would share with the SEC staff if they came in the course of
1: an examination. Segue into the examination process. What are your recommendations to your clients and prospective clients around this and managing a routine SEC exam?
2: And they generally come, of course, at the worst possible time. It's going to be audit season. It's going to be in the middle of a fundraise. But one of the ways to get ahead of it is you know already what the SEC is going to ask for. You can get copies of exam request letters from the particular regional office that is coming to see you or the particular unit, in the case of the private funds unit. The easy to pull down stuff, fund documents, code of ethics, etc., should already be ready to go Second, I'm not a big believer in giant mock exams, but having focused, targeted, hopefully deeper dives into particular areas, again, once a year, twice a year, will help you be ahead in those particular areas. And that includes interviewing your staff who are going to be terrified of this encounter with the government and need to learn to appear candid, but maybe not say so much.
1: Any real-life examples about how not to engage with the sec during an examination
2: we had a investment professional who was quite loquacious and just could not help himself from talking and talking and volunteering and volunteering we seriously considered sending him abroad for the rest of the examination but ultimately they did not thank goodness ask him to sit for any further interviews and they managed to get themselves interested in some other things so That happens. One of the big things with the SEC staff is it can be difficult to notice when you've gotten off on the wrong foot and see when things are going awry. I recommend to CCOs that at the end of every single day of the exam that there's activity or things have been asked for if the staff is in an active phase, that you reiterate back to the staff what it is they asked for, you shape the description of that because 99 times out of 100, they will accept your description, which may be a little narrower or a little more manageable.
1: How important is it to start these interactions with, let me tell you about the organization and what we do?
2: My impression is
1: becoming increasingly less important,
2: which is to say that unless your strategy is unusual or there is something idiosyncratic about your organization, maybe its structure, maybe the way the firm is managed that the staff wants to get beyond that. I know in the case of an exam that I participated in recently, the introductory presentation started and the staff derailed it within maybe 10 minutes at most. That's how long they were willing to sit tapping their feet and then start just diving into the things that they were interested in because they were prepared. And I believe staffs are better prepared now than they have been in the past, partly because of the training that they're getting in the private funds unit, partly because of the caliber of examiner that they're getting
1: what are the skills required for a legal compliance professional? I personally
2: had a soft spot for folks who came from an operational background at some point in their career. Again, because that's the piece that is hard to develop once if you've always been in a legal role or compliance role. And I wanted somebody with confidence because each of my people at some point is going to be dispatched to go talk to the CIO, or they're going to be dispatched to talk to a busy investment professional or a busy CFO, and they need to be able to express themselves quickly, and they need to not get frightened, and they need to not get put off. So it does require a certain persistence, it requires brevity, and it does require some listening. Most important thing is, can the person prepare in the way that an investment professional needs them to, which is to say... You got one shot to talk to the investment professional. You need to anticipate what the questions are going to be, what the alternatives are, and be ready with the
1: answers. On that point, any suggestions, the best way to work with an investment-oriented founder, how do you manage their expectations? How do you make them understand how important this stuff is?
2: I was fortunate to work with a founder who absolutely understood the importance of compliance, the preparation, the appeals to values as opposed to Particular rules really goes a long way. Choosing your moment <laughs> goes a long way. I quickly learned to read my guy and understand when the moment was ripe and when the moment was not. So look at the daily P and <laughs> Exactly, it's not a bad barometer. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that CCOs need to do is to really understand that what you think is important is not necessarily in that moment important to the investment professional. And again, be humble about that. Persistent but humble about it and understand you may need to pull back and try again at another moment. I always say the one person who should not panic in a compliance crisis is the CCO because you need to be the voice of calm and reassurance in the firm.
1: Let's turn to what you're doing today. I do two things. Number
2: one, I've helped a number of new managers, mostly who are former high fields investment professionals and some others, launch their funds, which has been a ton of fun not just helping them with compliance, but helping them think through the business issues, helping them hire people, helping them make their spend, whatever it may be. So I spend maybe half my time doing that. The other thing I've done is become a director to certain private fund complexes. The ones I'm involved in are in the Cayman, but could be anywhere, theoretically. That has both kept my fingers on the pulse of Cayman law and Cayman developments, which is super helpful and also allowed me to work with some firms that I wouldn't otherwise be working with from a compliance perspective.
1: What makes a good
2: board member? I think of it as what makes a good mix of board members. First of all, the board member should be engaged and should be as skeptical of you at the outset as you are of them at the outset. Because if they're not, I just question whether they're going to bring a skeptical eye to their work, which I think is absolutely critical for a director. Second, the boards that I have seen that operate well often have a Cayman member, somebody who's knowledgeable about US law and somebody from inside the manager. And I think that range of backgrounds is helpful as opposed to having, say, two came-in directors and somebody inside the firm. This is not a joke. I had a director who I literally didn't hear speak in 10 years until the day he was retiring from us. That sort of invisibility, I think, it ended up that we basically had a one member board of directors who was the other came-in director. I think both and all parties on the board should be pulling their weight as they go along which can be tough to evaluate before you're in the mix, but is definitely something to think about. It is hard to get rid of directors because you have to explain to LPs why it is you're doing that and to regulators.
1: How would one go out and find a board or one or more board of directors through different organizations?
2: There are these factories of directors that have, typically the director has 20 or more different boards that they're on, and they all are employed by a organization in the Cayman or in BVI or both. And their profession is being a board member of private funds, which is fine. Many very competent, many very experienced. I also believe that trying to find somebody who is not in that setting, who has the operational background or the legal background or something that's recent or relatively recent is going to make for a more effective board overall. What are your minimum expectations of a board member? The number one thing that board members bring to the table is the ability to address and evaluate conflict because as the manager, you need somebody who is independent, who hopefully has analytical skills to understand the conflict. To help you work through it and frankly give you some cover. Somebody later down the road, an LP or a regulator questions the decision that was made. The other thing that board members need to do is keep up with trends. And again, this is on both sides of the pond, um, whether it's in Cayman or in the US, understanding where regulators are interested in going, what the concerns of LPs are today. Right now, one of the big things that frightens board members is the issue of cybersecurity and how, as a board member, can I see into the cyber regime of my manager, or are they going to be the next one on the front page of the journal?
1: That's a weighty issue. No matter what size you are, how do you go ahead and how do you actually get that? What does that body of information look like?
2: Ultimately, I think unless you are a cyber professional yourself, you can't be making judgment about the particular technologies being used or particular policies that are in place, I think what you can do is make sure the procedures seem to be there that allowed the manager to get to where they need to go, that you're getting regular reporting on what the manager is actively doing, that the manager has hired both internally and externally appropriate advisors to help them out along the way. So you're more looking at the process than the substance. Because I don't think board members are typically in a place to, say, evaluate a particular software or a particular technology.
1: The other part of your job is to really helping people launch. Converting from being an analyst to a PM or starting your own company, where do people get bought down?
2: The thing about investment analysts is they're not necessarily business people. They have not run a business. They have not necessarily managed people or not very many people. They definitely have not managed typically the non investment professionals. So one of the biggest challenges hiring and selecting the right partners to go into the non investment partners to join you in your venture. So important to have in particular the right COO to run the non investment side of the house in a way that's both consistent with your values and meets your expectations for speed,
1: efficiency in your budget as well. Given the range of the people that show up in the COO hat, whether they have a legal bent or a business development bent or a finance bent, how do you find that right match? It's tough. I don't
2: think the legal is the direction I would go or have seen people generally go. They're typically either a business development person or somebody who's been on the finance and accounting side of the world in their prior lives and now wants to get ownership of some other areas of the world. I think the personality mix is probably the number one thing. And second thing, again, the management skills. Have you actually run a business at any time? Because there's so many details about it that the investment professionals frankly don't even know were happening behind the scenes when they're just focused on the investments.
1: Any advice for somebody looking to get in not necessarily a COO role, but a CCO role or a general counsel role? The number one thing is
2: a cliche, but is networking. And by that, I mean actual active networking where you're providing value to folks and not just calling when you need mm-hmm. help. This is obviously a very insular industry. And I had a couple of peer groups when I was at <laughs> Highfields and had what I call my small group, which is where we bear our souls to one another and a larger group that We'll talk over issues, but maybe people keep some of the details a little close to the vest. You need both those things because those are the people who are ultimately going to get you the jobs in the future. It is not unheard of for a law firm associate to manage to get into a fund. I think, again, the operational side of things is not the lawyer's strong suit. That can be a bumpy adjustment. It comes in a couple <laughs> of flavors, the lawyer being aware of the law, but having no idea how the firm would actually go about complying with the law in a particular case not infrequently on the trading side. Second, lawyers, by reputation, terrible managers of people. So to learn how to do that in an effective
1: way, and I'm talking manage up as well as manage down. Because they're coming from solo practitioner, even though they're at a firm, they're all worried about their own personal time commitment. Exactly. And they generally not overseeing large teams of people or even more than one or two people at a time. We have Typically, two closing questions. For you, I'm going to throw in a bonus question. My first question is What advice would you give to an emerging manager starting a fund about running their business? Three things outsource as much as humanly possible. Second,
2: hire the right people, but not very many of them. And third, do not overspend. Can't say enough people getting into leases for prime property that they perceive themselves to need for a marketing perspective and getting themselves underwater real quickly.
1: What is the one industry book or resource you most commonly send to people?
2: I adopted this one from Highfields because it's a terrific book. We actually had a closet full of them in about seven different languages. It's called The Outsiders. Will Thorndike is the author, and it basically looks at eight CEOs who Thorndike viewed as particularly effective over time. And it's important for the investment professionals, I think, to help evaluate CEOs. But for anybody, it is just a great book about how to run a business, how to allocate capital, how to create value through the stories of these eight CEOs.
1: The bonus question was, is it true you have a copy of the Enron Compliance Manual? Indeed.
2: So at Highfields Capital was one of the first hedge funds that started to short Enron and asked hard questions to the Enron team. And a somewhat famous moment in which the Highfields have been pushing and pushing and pushing. And the Enron executive thinks that he's off the recording and it says something to the effect of, asshole. After Enron went down and Highfields reaped its reward, the head of the firm Went and acquired a whole bunch of Enron memorabilia. So we had, amongst other things, a giant Enron E tilted on its side right outside the room where we met every day for morning meeting with the investment team. So that the guys would have to pass it and remember their skepticism whenever they're talking to teams. And then on my last day at Highfields, my boss brought me into the Enron closet. And lo and behold, there was the Enron Code of Ethics, which he presented to me as a parting gift, which I
1: still have today. So what's the moral to the story there?
2: Definitely not worth the paper it's printed on, that's for sure. (laughs) Ultimately, it was pretty skinny, but it comes back to what I said, I think, at the outset, that the rules and the statutes and the laws are one thing and the policies are one thing. But the values of a particular organization, that's what's really going to keep it on the right track. Scott, it was a wonderful conversation. All right.
0: Thanks, Scott. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at CapitalAllocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time.